My name's Aaron. I'm really glad you guys are here this morning and uh, very excited about the opportunity to share with you um, as we continue digging into the book of James. And uh, we're studying the letter written by James. And as a part of that, if this is your first time with us this week, um, what we've been doing as we've worked through this series is that we've created a book um, that, to help you work through the letter of James um, in a couple different ways. So there's these little blue books, and there's a table with them out in the lobby if you don't have one. Really encourage you to pick one up on your way out today, because what we're doing with those is engaging the text not just for the next, you know, 45 minutes here on Sunday morning, but that book allows you to, it's got space to, to ask and answer some questions about the text on your own, so you can do some individual study of the of the scripture yourself, and then it also has some discussion questions that you can use in a group. So if you're moving into a community group, which we highly encourage you to do if you're not a part of one, but you've been attending here at Trailhead, um, uh, if you'd like to join a community group, ask them out at Connection Point how you can be a part of one of those, and then interact with the text in that way. If you don't want to be a part of a community group, just grab a group of friends, start a study together, and just work through some of those questions in a group, so that what you're doing is interacting with these words, with these truths, not just, you know, for this short time on Sunday morning, but also on your own and in a group and just in multiple ways to really drive the truth deeper and deeper down into you and bring out things that that maybe, you know, me in the next 45 minutes, I'm not going to bring out in a way um, that connects as well as you might do in a conversation or on your own one-on-one with God. So uh, again, if you don't have one, highly encourage you to pick one of those up on your way out. We are in the book of James, then James chapter 1, and today we're going to focus on verses 12 through 15. So if you would uh, turn there in your Bible, or it's printed in the book if you have the book open. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Please follow along with me as I read. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The word of the Lord. As, uh, as I'm reading and studying through the book of James, one of the things that, that occurs to me and is actually very powerful and very helpful to me as I think through it, um, James, and we talked about this in the first week in the introduction to the series, he was, uh, our understanding, based on the rest of Scripture, he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, but also... He was the lead elder in the first church in Jerusalem, which means this. Why does that matter? Because that means that James was not some kind of scholar or academic or theologian who talked about these issues and these ideas separate from the realities of life. Rather, James James is a pastor. So James is interacting with people on a daily basis, real people who have real 
problems. So when James talks about trials, and he talks about temptations, he's not just talking about a theoretical abstract idea. And he could give you a definition, here's what a trial is, or here's what a temptation is. James would be able to picture real people who are experiencing true trials and true temptation. And he understands, like we would understand, that it can be easy to talk in a systematic way about this is what a trial is, and this is what a temptation is, and here's how you should respond, and X, Y, Z. But when you get down into the real experience of life, that it gets a whole lot messier. And that these things overlap, and they can get ugly, and James knew people, and he cared about people who were having real trials. He would be able to close his eyes and picture a family that he was interacting with on a daily basis where there was a marriage in grave danger, where there was a parent and child relationship that was strained, possibly they would say beyond the point of reconciliation. He would be able to picture in his mind people whose work situations had flipped upside down, and where they had thought they were secure, suddenly they felt completely and totally insecure. All these things were real to him. And so when he writes this, again, it's not in an academic or an abstract way, and he's not just telling you this is how it should be, this is how it should be. What James is saying when he writes to us is because I know and because I love and care about and desire what is best for my friends, this is the path that I hope you will take. And very clearly here in verses 12 through 15, James is talking about two possible paths. Paths through trials. So we've talked before, um, and it's coming back again about the idea of trials and what we do when we go through trials, and James kind of takes it for granted. Back in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, not if. Because he knows it's inevitable. All of us will experience difficulties in life. However, not everyone comes out of those trials the same. And here in verses 12 through 15, James underlines two very different paths with two very diametrically opposed destinations. And he uses language that's maybe we could say extreme, but I think James would say it's totally appropriate. In verse 12, he says, When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And in verse 15, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so James is saying no less here than the two possible outcomes for trials are life and death. This is a matter of life and death. You say, are you overstating the case, James? And James would say, no, that's how important this issue is. So what does he have to say about trials and then specifically as he goes on about temptation and how those two interact and how they're connected and how we can, because if if given the option between life and death, how can we arrive at a destination of life as opposed to death. So let's take a look. Verse 12. 
James begins by saying, blessed is the man. Blessed meaning uh, receiving blessings, finding rewards, is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Who goes through trials, and in those trials is able to withstand and hold as the pressures and the difficulties of life are pressing down on him. Blessed is the man who withstands it, and when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life. That within the idea that there's trials, there's also a promise. And there's a promise of a blessing. There's a promise of good. There's a promise of a reward for enduring trials. And we talked, again, a few weeks ago. uh, If you missed it, if you haven't been here, I highly encourage you to go back, listen to the first uh, couple of sermons from this series online um, or, or on the podcast. Because we talked in detail about what he means by trials and how his use in verse 2 of various trials means it can be anything. It can be big stuff and it can be small stuff. It's any discomfort. It's any, um, anything that you could in any way describe as suffering. But what he's telling us here is that not only um, is it a good thing to endure, but that there is in some way a reward associated with it. And, and he's vague on what is the crown of life. But we have to believe, based on what he said previously, that in some way the crown of life is related to um, the maturity, the development of ourselves and in us, and the strengthening of our relationship and our walk with Jesus. That as we go through trials, as we endure those trials, that we are brought deeper into our relationship with Christ, and by going deeper in our relationship with Christ, we find a deeper, a richer, a more full experience of what it truly means to be alive. But it's difficult. And it doesn't happen easily. And doesn't happen quickly. And it's only after we've gone through those trials that we can experience that reward. And then he transitions from there into talking about temptations. So the question that I have as I read that, and that you probably had as you were reading this week, in preparation, if you had the the book and you were preparing ahead of time, is what's the connection? Why go from trials to temptation? How are those two related to each other? Now, I don't want to make too big of a deal about this, but um, interestingly to me is that the word trial, the word test in verse 12, and the word tempted in verse 13 are basically more or less the same Greek word. There's a slight difference of tense there, But the word itself is more or less the same, which means this, that James, when he's writing this, is using the same term to refer to temptation and to trials. And yet there's a minor difference, which is why translators use different words here, and he's drawing a distinction, and we need to talk about the distinction, but but basically they're two sides of the same coin. That if you go through trials, you're going to experience temptation, that they go hand in hand. So what is a temptation? I mean, you all know what temptation is in the sense that you are tempted, right? And you hate it, right? I mean, temptations in our minds, in our hearts, we hate temptation because it's that weird dichotomy in our hearts of, I want to do this and I don't want to do this. That's what temptation is. It's, I want to do this, and then when I do it, I wish I hadn't done it. 
but I want to do it again. That's, that's temptation. You have that experience. And there's something in you, and it's different, just like trials are different, temptation's different for all of us, and so I, I know, but I know when I say it that you can very clearly pull up in your mind what that strongest temptation is for you. That thing that, that you hate it, and yet, man, you love it, right? You want to do it, and you don't want to do it, and you're just constantly at war in your heart and in your mind between it. That's temptation, And what's the relationship between that and trial? And why is it, maybe this is the better question, why is it that when you go through a really difficult time, temptation seems so much stronger? You know that, right? That when when your life feels particularly difficult, that the temptation to do those things, that there's a part of you that says, I shouldn't do it, but man, when life is hard, the, the, the desire to do those things is so much stronger. Why is that? Maybe it would help. Maybe it would help if we look at how James defines temptation and see the connection that he draws between temptation and trials. And a lot of it has to do with this idea that the trials, the difficulties, that suffering lead us to life. And all of us want that destination. We all want that reward. We all want that whatever that blessing that he's referring to is, we just don't really want to go through the process of getting there, right? And maybe it would help us to define temptation the way James does, which is this. Temptation temptation is our attempt to shortcut God's path to blessings. Because God has a path to life for us. That path happens to go through suffering. We want to get to the destination, but we want to get there faster. And that's what temptation is. It's our attempt to jump out of that path and to jump ahead to the destination. It's us saying, I want the good things but I don't want to go through the process God's taking me through to get them. And I think, this is what James is saying, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. I think in my heart that I know a better or a faster way to get to what God's offering. And God holds out this offer, this promise of goodness, of a fuller, richer, deeper life, and I want that, But I don't like the path there, and so I figure I can get there quicker. Maybe maybe I can illustrate this this way. Um, Do you ever play Super Mario Brothers? Can we get that? Oh, yeah. Super Mario Brothers. The real Super Mario Brothers, okay? The NES, the 8-bit graphics, the, the MIDI soundtrack. You know what I'm talking about? No? It's just me? Okay. This was a major part of my life, uh, my childhood, which you can there say that explains a lot, right? Um, I spent hours playing Super Mario Brothers when I was a kid. Hours and hours and hours. Um, Unfortunately, I just have to be open and authentic here uh, to connect with my audience. I was not very good 
at Super Mario Brothers. I, was, I really was not. I, ne- I never won Super Mario. I never defeated the game. Never. Um, I had friends who did. I saw it happen. I believe it could be done. I was never able to get there myself. And uh, with all those hours and hours of work, it, it all came to naught eventually. I found out recently, though, um, that there's something called speed runs for Super Mario Brothers, probably for other video games as well, but um, that people have figured out with technology, this technology did not exist when I was a kid playing Super Mario, that they could record themselves playing Mario Brothers and, and they compete to see who can defeat the game fastest and that people can run through the entire Super Mario from start to finish in under five minutes. That blows me away because I spent hours and hours and hours and never, never even defeated it. But they can get through in under five minutes. How? Well, it's because they know all the shortcuts. And they know exactly how to play the game to skip over the most difficult parts. Of course, even if you can't do it under five minutes, you probably figured out at some point, if you were, if, I'm, I'm taking for granted that all of you played Super Mario Brothers as much as I did, okay? So I apologize if you didn't. Um, here, I'll explain to those of you who didn't. This is called a warp zone. This was the greatest discovery of your life the first time you were playing Super Mario Brothers because a warp zone allows you to skip levels, right? And so you get to, it's hidden. It's not just a, a normal part of the path. You have to know the secret, but if you know the secret way to get there, you can jump ahead and skip ahead to different levels. There's eight levels in Super Mario Brothers. If you hit warp zones, you can skip from level two up ahead, and then you can skip from here we see from level four to level six, seven, or eight. My question is, why would anybody go to level six or seven? I don't... Okay, another discussion for another time. But you could jump ahead, and you could skip all the difficult parts of those other levels and just jump closer to the end. This is so much what we want in life. If someone offered us the opportunity to get to the end, not not the end of our lives, but the blessing, the good thing that's being offered, but to skip all the bad stuff we have to go through to get there, would you take that? I will answer for you, yes. You would take that. If you could get the blessings, the goodness, the happiness, the deepness, the richness, faster without going through the pain and the suffering it takes to get there, you would take that in an instant. The problem is, and here's what James tells us, that life doesn't work like Super Mario Brothers. That the The warp zones, the shortcuts that we try to take to get to happiness, to get to blessings, to get to fulfillment, they don't lead us further along in the path toward that end. In fact, they do the exact opposite. And that's why he says in verse 15 that desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. That the idea that we have, that we can skip ahead and we can find comfort or security or whatever that may be in our own way, 
is actually leading us in the opposite direction of where we really want to end up. And temptation is that idea that I can get there faster, but unfortunately, the truth is, it doesn't work. And that's why you want it, but you hate it. And that's why you do it and you say you'll never do it again, but you keep doing it again and again because you keep getting further away, but you keep thinking it's going to get you closer. And you just keep, pardon the horrible analogy, but it's the best we have, you just keep going down the pipes, but you keep ending up in a totally different world than the one you were hoping for. But that leads us to a question, and here's where this gets really tricky and and Luckily, James is here walking us through this, but if my temptation comes from my desires, which is what he clearly says in verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, and that desire is for this fuller and richer and deeper experience of life, and God's promised us that, then doesn't that mean that uh, this, this is getting confusing? My desire is for something good that God's promised. My desires come from God, don't they? Then how can my desires be what's leading me toward temptation and on, by extension, toward death, if that's coming from God? Isn't that like saying, if we follow this out logically, that our sin and our death is brought about by God? Isn't that what we're saying? If it's my desires that are leading me in that direction and those desires come from God, well, look, Hey, James answers that question for us. Verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Don't fall into this trap. This is the trap. The trap is, I want what's good. God, you're offering what's good. That's all I'm wanting. And we deceive ourselves and we start to believe That that cycle of sin that we get ourselves caught in that keeps leading to death over and over and over again is actually God's fault. And we can start to grow cold and very bitter towards God because we believe, if we believe, that God's totally in control, then couldn't he take away our temptation at any time? And we pray and we pray these prayers, God, just please take this temptation away from me. Take this desire away from me. And if it doesn't happen, then we start to believe that either A, God doesn't love us, or B, this temptation is just from him. He's giving us this temptation. He's leading us into it. And either we just give up then and say, well, I guess this is God's path for me. Or we grow very angry and very bitter. Because we believe God could have rescued us from this, and he chose not to. But James says no. James says no. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why not? Because God cannot be tempted with evil. I, on first reading, don't understand the connection there. Okay, God can't be tempted good. (laughs) It's good, good for him, right? I am. Why is that helpful to me? 
Well, we have to think of what he's saying here. What, what, what James is saying here is, when we think of the word evil, what we're thinking of is anything that does not conform to who God is. Our whole conception, our whole understanding of good comes from our understanding of God. God is, in and of himself, as the one who created the entire universe, the very definition of what is true and what is good and what is right. Evil is anything that is not God. So, I mean, on a very, you know, by definition, God cannot be tempted with evil because evil is not him. God has no, let's put it this way, no desire for evil. Not just within himself. And when James says God cannot be tempted with evil, he's not just saying God doesn't have an impulse to do what's wrong. What he's saying is God does not desire evil. God does not desire sin. He does not desire bad for himself or for you. That there is no affection or longing for or in any way impulse towards bad for God. God does not want you to do what is wrong. He does not desire that. And he himself tempts no one. Those desires you have towards sin, towards disobedience to God, are not coming from God. Then where are they coming from? And how can we say that we have desires from God, but not, I mean, how does this work? Well, Maybe it helps if we think about desire in this way. <clears throat> and this is, I think, the way James is talking about it here. Temptations are a surface-level desire. Maybe, maybe, in my mind, helps to think like lowercase d desire, little d desires. That only cover for or point to a deeper and more true, capital D, desire for something bigger and better. Example, we have a true desire for approval. How do we seek that desire for approval? Well, the temptation, the surface level, is through sex. And not because sex in and of itself is this deep desire, but it's the idea that I will feel like someone loves me through this. That surface level, that temptation towards, that desire for, and it could be a million different things. It could be sex, but it could be shopping. It could be uh, advancement at work. It could be money in and of itself, just financial standing. It could be whatever it is, is actually just the surface level of a deeper desire for something that truly can be satisfied and fulfilled through a relationship with God. True approval that doesn't shift, that isn't based on the emotional whims of some other person, can only be found and only be fulfilled through a relationship with a God who loves us unconditionally. But to get to that deeper understanding... To fulfill the big D desire requires, as James keeps telling us, going through suffering and trials. So that as we go through them, we experience his love 
and his comfort and his provision for us in those times, and his love becomes more real to us, and our love for him becomes much richer and deeper, but it's only through that pain. And so we are saying in our minds, I don't want to go through that. I'm going to get the approval. I'm just going to get it without God. And this is, we've used this term, and James talks about this over and over and over again throughout this letter, this idea of worldliness. Worldliness is this. It's our desire to get the benefits and the blessings of God apart from a relationship with God. And that's what temptation is. Temptation is holding out for us a lie that we can do just that. That when you engage in this, when you do this, when you follow this path, it's going to get you all the good things and you don't have to go through all the other stuff to get there. But James tells us it's, it's a lie. It doesn't work. Because, again, those deeper desires can only be fulfilled by God. And any attempt to shortcut does not lead us there. It leads us in the opposite direction. Away from the only one who can fulfill So James, as the pastor, as an elder, as the one who cares and loves his audience, his friends, his family, he implores them, don't settle for the lie. Don't, to put it bluntly, don't sin. And we say, well, thanks, James. That's easy, right? Just don't sin. Has anybody ever given you that advice before? Just don't do that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really struggling with temptation. What should I do? Don't do it. Thanks. But something James says here, uh, and we need to go back to verse 12 and look at this in a little more depth, actually unlocks this in a way that I consider extremely helpful. And it's a much, much more powerful understanding of how God gives us blessings and how we, to use the term, fight against temptation that's a lot more helpful than just don't do it. Look at verse 12, and here's what we need to do. We need to break down this sentence in verse 12 and understand the relationship between several of these phrases here. Because if we just read through it too quickly, I think we can miss this. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Okay. So the man, the person here that is being described as receiving blessings who and later on will receive the crown of life. This is the person we want to be, right? We all want to receive these blessings, the crown of life. We want the reward. We want the good thing. This is the deep desire. Who is this? Here's what we have to understand. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That phrase, who remains steadfast under trial, is describing the person who receives those blessings. But here's what it's not. 
It's not telling the qualification for receiving those blessings. Okay? If that doesn't make sense, hang on. Hang on. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The key word here is when he has stood the test. This phrase, when he has stood the test, is not telling us how to become that person. It's telling us when you receive the blessings. Are you following this? What I'm saying is, James is not saying, you need to work really hard to withstand the test. You need to push really hard to be steadfast under trial so that you can become the person who receives blessings. What he's telling us is, that's the process you go through, and here's when you receive the blessings, but who is it for? Look at the end of the sentence. Which God has promised to, here's the the qualification. Here's who receives the blessings. Here's who holds up and remains steadfast under trial and receives blessings during those trials. Those who love him. The qualification here, the person who receives blessings or life or the capital D desires of their heart is the person who loves God. It's not the person who holds up the strongest It's not the person who endures the longest. James' exhortation here is not keep fighting because in the fighting, if you're a fighter, if you can fight hard enough, if you can hold off long enough, then God will look at you and he'll say, you've earned this. Here's some blessing. There is no language of earning here. Blessings aren't something you achieve by your own willpower or your own strength or your own effort to fight. Blessings are totally, fully, and completely a gift from God. Verse 16 says this, 16 and 17. We looked at these last week, but they go right back into this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift, word gift, gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will, his choice. He brought us forth by the word of truth. It's not about us at all, it's God's start to finish. We have to endure, you say. No, no, no. We endure, but we endure because of him. The only way we can endure is because of him. And you and I both know that we don't always endure. And we don't always avoid or fight back or resist temptation. But we could say, but wait, wait, wait. It says, not, (laughs) which God has promised. It doesn't say to those he loves. It says to those who love him. That's on us, right? We still have that responsibility, right? We have to love God. Well, here's the thing about love. 
Love isn't something you can just manufacture. You can't just work it up. Okay? You can't make yourself love someone more or love someone at all. Love is a response. Scripture says this real super clear, super short verse, but 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John writes, We love because he first loved us. Our love for God is only a response to his love for us. It's only when we think about, focus on, lean into what he has done for and shown us, the affection he's shown to us, and what affection is that? What love is that? It's this, that he sacrificed himself for us. That he died for us. And not because we love him, and not because we earned it, and not because we were steadfast, or we fought against temptation, but actually for the exact opposite reason. He loved us and died for us because we don't love him, because we don't stand strong under temptation, because we give in. And in our giving in, we deserve punishment. We deserve justice. But God, by his mercy and by his grace and in his love, took that punishment for us. And it is when we understand and recognize that kind of love that we respond to it in love to him. So when James says the crown of life is promised to those who love him, what he's talking about here is those who will respond to the love that God has shown to them. That when you understand the grace, the mercy, the love that he has shown to you, that the affection that that should and and truly, when you understand, will generate in your heart is so much deeper and so much greater and can be so much more powerful than the pull towards all those shortcuts. And it's that love and that love alone that can motivate you to endure through the suffering and through the pain. And it's that love alone that will teach you that temptation and sin and death are not from God because he loves you. Endurance is not the qualifier for God's blessings. It's his love. Endurance is the process. Endurance is what we go through. Suffering is what we go through to receive the blessings. But it's not so that we can become blessed. It's as a result of his love. Have you ever been <clears throat> have you ever been sick? 
sick in that way that you, like, you just can't get out of bed, you're so, like, just so weak, just so physically ill, and it's like, you just, that's that flu, and all you can do is just lay there and sweat, right, and you just, like, you don't want to be, at that moment, awake, or, in a, you know, in a way, you just, you just want to be, like, oh, I just can't move, right, and every single movement, like, you scratch your nose, and your whole body feels sore, like, you, have you ever been that, you know, that kind of sick, Hopefully not right now. If you are, you shouldn't be here. Um, but you just feel like, I just can't do anything. Um, if somebody came to you at that time and told you, you know, you're so sick. You know, health, if you were healthy, you could get up and you could go out and run. And you said to yourself, you're right. When I'm healthy, I, I run. I know I'm going to go running. Because I am so sick, I will go running. What would happen in that moment if you decided, because you are so sick, that you need to go out for a run? Don't think about it too long, because it wouldn't be very pretty, right? What do you actually need when you're sick? You need to get healthy. When you're healthy, can you go for a run? Sure. Some of us still choose not to, but that's a different story. Being, uh, running is not the path to recovery, it's the benefit of health. Is this making sense? This is what we're saying here. Endurance in trials, resistance to temptation. Those are not the way that we develop and earn and maintain a relationship with God. Those are the blessings of a relationship with God. That the thing we need to do, the should, the encouragement, that here's the path forward for us, is to lean deeper into his love for us. To focus more on what he has done for us. And then you say, and then you say, well, if... if, if it's not a qualifier, I mean, if, if, if all it is is just love, well, then I can just go out and do whatever. Why do I need to withstand temptation? I can just sin however I want. Well, no, because, look, if you truly love him and trust in him, then you're going to believe that that's a false path. And you're going to understand and believe him when he says that path leads to death. And that it's the path to through suffering that's going to lead you to the true desires of your heart. And because of your love, because of your trust for him, you're going to be much more willing and much more desiring of following him. But now you're obeying, and you're not obeying because you think this is the way it has to be because you've got to earn this and because you've got to knuckle down and you've got to fight against it. You're obeying because you believe him that he's leading you to life. And that's a totally different motivation. And it's such a different motivation that it's a totally different path. So here's what James is telling us everybody's going to experience temptation. Everybody's going to experience trials and suffering. But there are two paths through. And James' exhortation to us, his invitation to us, 
is to take the path that leads to life. And the only way to take that path is to follow the one who loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are reminded of the the depth and the richness of your love for us. How completely, overwhelmingly undeserved that love is, and yet how freely and abundantly and powerfully you give it to us. So God, our prayer today is that we would stop running from your love towards these false paths, these desires that will not lead us to life but will lead us straight to death. Help us to stop believing that lie. Help us to see clearly the truth of who you are and where our sin will lead us. But awaken in us, please, God, not a stronger resolve to work harder, but a deeper and richer and more beautiful vision of your love for us. And as we repent of our frequent and habitual belief in the lies held out by our poor substitutes for you, we believe that you meet us there in our brokenness and in our repentance and that your arms are open wide and you do not condemn, but you love. So let us fall into your arms today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.